WOR Newsroom, Lester Smith reporting. Over WOR New York, your station for news as it happens. Here's Gene Shepard. scared by Boston Blackie uh, as a trauma when you were too young to to, <laughs> to to ward it off. Oh yeah, yeah, many many people carry what they what they are now beginning to term in uh, in psychological uh, circles electronic trauma. Bulldog Drummond. Who played I have no idea who played Bulldog Drummond. Who played Bulldog Drummond? I mean, your your head is filled with worse garbage than mine, then. I don't know who played. George Sanders? Oh, yeah, that was an elegant eye. Uh, George Sanders' brother, Tim Conway. Tom Conway? Well, you can see my grasp of that kind of trivia is is, is shaky at best. Thank God. Uh, thank you. You know, I... I well, I'll tell you this, that, 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 that sometimes you run into a traumatic experience like this, Nick, and you, you can't ever escape from it. I... I'll give you an example of this. That uh, were you ever in the Boy Scouts? Were you? Well, I was too, and I, I was in the in the in the in the troop called Troop Forty One, and it was you know I was out in the Midwest, Troop Forty One, and I was in the Moose Patrol, and in fact I was a junior patrol leader, which made it the uh, I think the yes, in fact the rank of the junior patrol leader was a single. Blue a green bar it was a grass green bar which you sewed on your your uh, your shirt your Boy Scout shirt and if you were a patrol leader you got two bars and I had this green bar I was a junior patrol leader which meant that I was uh, that whenever we would go on a hike being a junior patrol leader 
there were four or five patrols in the troop. That All that meant was that I was expected to have the uh, Hormel chili. I was expected to provide the chili for the, <laughs> for the crowd. Did you, you know, and, and, and I, 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 I was in this, this Boy Scout. Now, why am I bringing this Boy Scout troop up? Well, I'm going to tell you, there's a reason for this. Now, I, I do not mess around. Uh, I, I, uh, the, no, believe me, I think the world is so full of uh, trivia. You just got to clear the decks. I'm not going to sit here and talk about Bulldog drumming. No way. I mean, uh, because, of course, this is important in one way, because I suppose many people turned on a Bulldog Drummond episode and were affected by it before their head was solidified. Did you Did you ever hear, Nick, of the what they call the scrambled egg theory of, of the brain? Well, the scrambled egg theory is that everybody up to the age of 16, their brain is not totally solidified yet. It's really just, in, in, in essence, you're carrying nothing around in the, in the head between the ears for the first 16 years of your life of uh, sophisticated scrambled eggs is what you got. And that as you get older, your head begins to coalesce and it begins to have intelligible thoughts. And uh, by the time you're in your mid-twenties, you are capable of a primitive form of logic. But uh, <laughs> earlier, <laughs> well, I, 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 look, don't, don't blame me. I'm merely relating uh, was, uh, scientific theory. I, I, do not, uh, I do not create this. I'm merely relating it. To, I know that many of you still do not believe that airplanes fly. I, I can only point out that there is a profound uh, reason for this and a very clear physical reason. I didn't invent the law of gravity, Nick. I, I just I can only tell you that, that it's there. But uh, there are other traumas. Now, for example, uh, that, that we never escaped. I personally had one one time. In fact, the entire Moose Patrol had a terrible trauma which uh, is very similar to Nick's problem with Bulldog Drummond. Uh, I know at 3 o'clock in the morning when Nick wakes up for some reason, somebody's banged up a garbage can outside of his apartment or something, he immediately, uh, without thinking, uh, he probably thinks uh, you know a Bulldog Drummond episode comes when somebody's coming in through his window and Tim Conway will protect them. Who knows? Uh, these, <laughs> these traumas are deep. But... I personally had one, and I'm just going to warn you: if you're, you know, if, if the kids are up, you better turn them off of this next uh, uh, episode here because it has certain ramifications that cannot be escaped. And that is this: how did I learn to be so suspicious of things? Have you ever noticed that Shepard is not a true believer? Have you noticed that? Have you noticed he did not leap on any bandwagons at the time when the bandwagon was going by. You never hear Shepard leaping on the McCarthy bandwagon when McCarthy goes by with the horns blowing, handing out odes and little bits of quatrains and verses. No, Shepard didn't leap. Why? Well, because Shepard has leaped on bandwagons before and they blew up in his face. Once you've leaped on a bandwagon and gone right through the floorboards and had the back wheel run right over your neck, you do not leap on many bandwagons. Correct? Correct. And I, I was involved in a bandwagon problem that I'll never forget. The Moose Patrol, one day we had this scout meeting, and uh, Mr. Gordon, our scout master, said that, uh, that what they're going to have is a big camporee. You know what is it, a camporee? All right, a camporee is when all the troops all around get together, you know, and it's a, it's a Boy Scout convention is what it is, basically. You know, they sit around and they make fire without matches and and talk about merit badges and jazz like that. And so the big camporee thing 
uh, involved every patrol uh, making its own project, getting a project together. Like one, one patrol would uh, decided. I remember we had the chipmunk patrol. The chipmunks uh, made a beautiful display of various knots, which uh, none of them had actually learned to tie, but uh, we copied, they copied. I wasn't, they copied out of the handbooks. <laughs> and they put them on a green board, and that was their project. Another one of our patrols, uh, we had a patrol, uh, uh, actually it was the, uh, I think it was the, uh, yes, uh, the, we had a patrol called, uh, called the Raccoons. Yes, the Raccoon Patrol. They named you after animals. You know this, uh, this problem. I was in the Moose Patrol. Ugly animal, the Moose, to begin with. Uh, other people were in beautiful patrols, like the Leopard Patrol. Beautiful animal. The Tiger Patrol. I was in the Moose Patrol. Big, lumbering, lout of an animal. And I remember our patch was a silhouette of the head of a moose, great big nose hanging down there. It looked like W.C. Fields with antlers. And uh, here we had this rotten-looking patch, and I was a patrol, assistant patrol leader. So we, we decided to have a spectacular. Let's, let's really go out and make a, let's make a project. Let's really do a project. And, uh, and so at that time, there were many of us who were involved in, in making things, the whole idea of making things. You go through a period like this when you're a kid. You want to make stuff, see, making things. And, as, <laughs> and somebody had dug a, a, an article out of one of the boy-type magazines. You know, there were a bunch of boy magazines, like uh, Boy's Life. It's a great magazine. And uh, they, they were always running articles on how to make a canoe out of birch bark. Well, that's not easy to do when there's no birch bark within like 12,000 miles. You can't make a canoe out of, uh, out of uh, let's say, oak tree bark. doesn't work. So uh, there were always these great projects like making a canoe, building a raft, uh, which you could use to uh, go down uh, the Orinoco River and investigate Lake Titicaca, that kind of stuff. Well, of course, since we the only river we had was a river called the Griselli River, which was filled entirely with chemicals. They had done away with water long before, and this river was filled with flammable chemicals. So building a raft to float on the Griselli River was ridiculous. In fact, you could walk on the Griselli River anyway. You didn't need no raft. You just walked down a river. So... Somebody got the idea and, and said, listen, I've got this great, great idea. There's an article in this magazine. We ought to build this thing. And so he brought it in. It was Jack Martin. Jack Martin, by the way, never, never lived down this episode. And probably to this day, he still skulks uh, in the bushes when people talk about his life as a kid. Jack Martin. Now, I'm going to tell you something that has never been told. Should I, should I tell us? Should I should I should I confess my complicity in a dastardly crime? Do you think it's safe now? Do you think I've gone past the period of limitations? I don't know. But this is what happened. I'll just I'll just describe what happened. We were sitting around down in the basement of this church where we had this scout meeting. Jack Martin, uh, who was uh, you know kind of a beaver type in the patrol, he says, "Listen, he says, how about?" I got this great idea. Let's build a hot air balloon as our project. A hot air balloon. Well, Schwartz and Flick, myself, were in this patrol. And there was about ten of us in the patrol. He says, hot air balloon. And he says, yeah. He says, there was plans in this 
this magazine. He said, I'll get the magazine. There's a plans in the magazine on how to make a hot air balloon. And let's make a hot air balloon. Make a secret project, see? We'll make this hot air balloon, and we will kill a man at the Camporee. At which point, Schwartz and Flick and myself, also got all excited. A hot air balloon, somehow that's a great idea because that has a lot more dynamism in it than making a, let's make a, a collection of leaves. Huh? How about that? Huh? We'll go out and collect leaves. Huh? How about that? Or uh, how about making a collection of uh, rocks? <laughs> we'll collect rocks and we'll label them. Yeah, we'll win that way. No, it's a hot air balloon. And he said, that's what we'll do. We'll put a big boy scout emblem on the side. And, you know, this really sounded great. So about three days later, we got together in Martin's house, and he had this magazine. And here's the way you make a hot air balloon, in case you're interested in this uh, uh, dangerous project. <laughs> it's a dangerous project. The hot air balloon consisted of... The, the, the plans that they had in this thing consisted of a template. A template that you, it, you know, this is like a, a dress pattern. And you cut strips of what they called Japanese model airplane silk. You cut them into this form. And you take a very thin, uh, highly diluted glue. Very thin. You get glue, regular glue, and you dilute it with something. I don't remember what we had to dilute it with, but we had to heat it on the stove, I remember. And it gets very thin, like water. In fact, it's it's so thin, you can't even believe it's glue. And then you paint these strips with this stuff, Nick. That makes it sort of airproof. And at that point, these things are then very careful. You take all these strips. We made about 20 strips of this stuff, which we bought it at the model airplane shop. We all chipped in a buck apiece, and uh, we laid in this... This, uh, this collection of glue, and, uh, and we just bought one pot of glue, and we bought this, this roll of Japanese silk. Have you ever seen this stuff, the airplane, model airplane silk? It's very thin, and it's so fragile that you can just, just about blow it away just by blowing on it. And so we cut out these templates. Now, you could make it almost any size, but the size we made was the size that they said was the best size that you could handle. And it was about five feet high. The actual balloon, the body of the balloon was about five feet high, and it was it was good good and round. It 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 was about uh, I'd say at the at the widest part it was, was pear shaped. If you can imagine a pear turned upside down, is the way it was, and it was pear shaped, kind of lumpy, you know. Which remind this is W O R New York, and uh, we have with us also the House of Chan gang, and uh, <laughs> they. Uh, uh, I could, you know, I could very easily tie uh, the House of Chen in with the, with the an elegant concept, which is a hot air balloon. Uh, I don't know whether, uh, you know, I don't know whether it's a good idea to talk about hot air balloons when you're a, when you're a performer on radio and TV. That could get very personal. But uh, nevertheless, uh, this business is filled with them. But uh, yeah, they're always saying, uh, "Here is Johnny." Never occurred to you that Ed McMahon is a little bit like a captive balloon. So I don't know why he. <laughs> but uh, I would like to point out that the House of Chan at 52nd and 7th is a very fine restaurant. And uh, if, you're, if you're getting a little itchy with the usual restaurants, people fall into a habit, you know, going to the same restaurants week after week or year after year. I'd suggest you try this one. It's got a nice quality to it. And it's very unpretentious, and the food is great. I think it's good. And, and the prices are excellent. And they've been there for a long time, and Mr. Chan is a good man. 35 years right there at that spot. There. 52nd and 7th Avenue. And if you don't know where that is, that's right in the heart of everything, man. 
in the middle of Manhattan, 52nd and 7th. And if you're going to a theater, I would suggest you drop by there before the theater and have your dinner there. Let them know, and they'll lay it on. they got a good bar there, too, by the way. And then they're open seven days a week, all right, till midnight. In the current issue of TV Guide magazine, as television prepares to present a special tribute to Duke Ellington, the king of modern jazz, TV Guide provides fascinating background on the man and his music. In the same issue, TV Guide journeys to Newburgh, New York, to examine the aftermath of a TV documentary aired 11 years ago. A report on the town and the people who won't forget television's effect on them. This week's TV Guide cover profiles Paul Lind. For most people, bad nerves lead to a doctor. But for Lind, bad nerves led to a good career in comedy. Paul Lind, featured this week in TV Guide, America's biggest selling weekly magazine. TV Guide, on sale everywhere. stopped the music to start you thinking that the music could stop. Someday, a live concert by the New York Philharmonic may be a thing of the past because the New York Philharmonic is desperately fighting a crippling deficit, even though it's playing for the enjoyment of more people than ever before. If great music is important to you, please help. Send your contribution, any amount, to the New York Philharmonic, Philharmonic Hall, New York, 10023. Don't let the music stop. Now, we're sitting there, see, working on this balloon, and it began to take shape. Have you ever built something together with a bunch of people, something that by yourself you could never build? Uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting experience. It's a curious experience. I one time helped a guy with about 25 other guys build a house. Did you ever do that? Well, it's a very eerie experience to all of a sudden see a house go up. And it really did go up. And uh, you, you, you can hardly believe that you did it. Well, we were sitting around down in, in uh, Martin's basement cooking glue. His mother had a stove down in the basement. Apparently she used that when she was heating water or something. And that we cooked the glue down. It was very secret. We were keeping it away from the rest of the troop. And you had to cut these strips out, and you very carefully, so that you didn't get lumps. You very carefully painted with it with a with a brush these strips of silk with this thin glue. And then you were supposed to hang them up on a clothesline, which we did. We put a little pin. You hang up, see, so that they dry real straight. Well, it was fantastic. It worked. After about three hours of work, we had about 20 of these magnificent strips, about five feet long, hanging all over Martin's basement. You can smell the glue, and uh, it smelled great. And now we are through airproofing the strips. Now, putting them together was another scene. Very carefully, you had to fit these things together, one after the other. And you use a little 
a little dab, just strip it, very thin strip of thicker glue. You glue these things together, and it slowly began to take shape. Well, it got harder and harder as this thing began to get round. You know, it got very difficult to do. And after about three days, we had the envelope of a balloon. And we were, you know, we would walk around, and Schwartz said, I can't believe we made it. Look at, there it is. And it's hanging. We had this hanging from the, from the ceiling in the basement of Martin's house. It was just hanging down. It was, it was drying. Then, at that point, you had to get, for the top of it, it had a hole in the top, see, a round hole. You took a very thin piece of piano wire. You've seen piano wire? You buy this at, the, at a model airplane shop. You took this thin piece of piano wire and made a circle of this stuff. It had to be done very carefully and, and twisted. It was a five-inch circle. At which point, all the very top ends, there were little little tabs that we had cut out on the on the uh, silk, were bent over this thing and glued very carefully in place. And now it is a form. You see, it's got a round ring at the top, which kept the top open. The bottom then also had a ring in it, which was much larger. The bottom ring was probably 14 inches in diameter. It was a big ring. And, and attached to that were little were, were lingerons, just actually 15 or 20 inch strips of this wire down to a little basket which we had to make out of this wire. And that was it. Can you imagine this thing now? In other words, it didn't have string. It had little thin pieces of wire that hang, hung down. Now, here's where it got really interesting. The, the instruction said, when you're about to let this thing go, you take excelsior, which is the kind of stuff that they pack things in. You know, it's just all ground-up wood and stuff. You, you get some of this stuff, and you, you compress it. Now, how do you compress it? Well, you put it in a jar, a ball jar, and you put rocks or something on top until it gets real flat. You make like, like a, it's like a compressed piece of sawdust, which you soak, by the way. You soak in kerosene and paraffin. You take wax, the kind of wax that people use for canning stuff, and you melt this wax. And you know that, you, did you know that you can melt wax and mix it with kerosene? It mixes right up with it, see? And, and at that point, you soak this stuff in, and then it, it hardens. It, the, the paraffin hardens, and now you have a, a, a small, very compact wad of sawdust and, and wood shavings that are pressed down, but have in it uh, it's mixed up with this paraffin and kerosene. I remember absolutely exactly how to make this. Now, what do you do with that? Well, you take this thing out, and it fits exactly down in the basket, the little wire basket you've made. Aha! Now you can see what's happening. Well, we're working on this damn thing for about, I'd say, about three weeks. <laughs> I mean, we're really down there. Every night we go down after school working on the balloon and... and uh, making these little wire things. We got needle nose pliers and stuff. And a couple of the kids were great model makers, including me. I was a great uh, model airplane builder. So, you know, it was kind of a great thing to build. Well, that's a great concept, the idea of a hot air balloon. Concepts are not often the same as reality. That's, that's uh, you know, when these guys shot up the first rocket with the first astronaut in, they must have really sweated blood. 
I mean, can you imagine that? Yeah, these guys have been messing around with the drawing board all this time. They shot a couple of practice rockets up with nobody in it. And then one day they shot one with a guy up in it. Who boy. Who was in it, by the way? The first guy that was shot up by a U.S. rocket. Who was it? You mean you don't remember him? Now, how do you like that for fame? Isn't that terrible? <laughs> you guys don't remember anything, do you? Even your own history. For crying out loud. But anyway, we got this thing down in the basement. Now we got out we got out a set of watercolors. You know the kind of kid watercolors that come in the long black uh, metal uh, uh, case with the little things red, blue, green paint? And we painted on the side of it. It was really great. We painted on the side this great big Boy Scout emblem. And incidentally, the silk that we bought was a kind of light orange silk. We could have gotten white. We could have gotten uh, a kind of blue, but we got orange. We painted on the side in this yellow paint on the glue on the glue covering. We painted a big uh, kind of yellowish. We thought it looked like gold, but it actually was kind of a sickly yellow. We painted a sickly yellow BSA emblem. You know that emblem? We painted the BSA, and underneath it we wrote, Be Prepared. <laughs> Ooh, was that prophetic? Well... We're sitting around down the basement with this thing, see. Now, the camporee and the big uh, display of, uh, of troop projects was going to happen like in about, oh, a month or something. And we've already got it done. There's the basement, see. And one night, about three days after we finished this thing, we're all down there planning on how we're going to have this great day at the camporee. We're going to get the whole... The, all, all the assembled Boy Scouts are going to be just gassed. Somebody says we ought to put a flag on the bottom of it. And, uh, you know, all kinds of... And now, <laughs> we're, we're, we're hanging around in the basement when all of a sudden, Martin, the provocateur, Martin said this. He says, why do we... Why not make another one? He says, well, yeah, yeah, okay, why? Why should we make another one? He says, why don't we make one to try out? Why don't we... Why don't we make one and, and, and actually make it go up? And then we'll know whether they work or not, see? Because if they, what if we go to the camporee and the thing doesn't work? You know, and, and there we are. We're all standing around. See, this was his rationale. Actually, what he wanted to do was to see one of them go. <laughs> and, and he didn't want to wait till the camporee. So sure enough, you know, we got all excited. Said, oh, great. Let's do that, see? So we built another one of these things. By this time, because we'd already made one, You'd be surprised how much easier the second one is. Uh, you really, you really knocked it off. And about at the end of the week, we had another one hanging down there. And our our first one, the big one with the big, big Boy Scout emblem on the side of this thing, we hung at the end of the basement where it was cool. See, so we wanted this thing to get really hard and great by the time the campery came. And so by Saturday, we had another one done. And it was not made with as elegant a detail as the first one, see, because we were going to really shoot this one off. Well, that Saturday night, we took it out, and <laughs> we got a hold of Flick's car, his old man's car. And it was, of course, it was, we, you could fold this thing up, see, we very carefully folded it up with all the wires and stuff. We stuck it in the trunk of the car, and uh, we had extra kerosene. It says you may have to soak it in extra kerosene the day you're going to shoot the thing off. And we took this thing way the hell out 
about, oh, about two miles away from Martin's house was a lot of vacant fields and lots out there, a lot of, you know, little forest preserves and stuff. We took this thing out. It was about 8 o'clock at night on a Saturday night. And it was a cold night, incidentally, uh, because the campery was going to be in the early spring. This was still winter time. You got the picture? None of us, none of the ten guys in that crew had any idea that we were about to be involved in a situation that I think has, has traumatized all ten of us all of our lives. And I don't know whether I should tell the rest of the story. Nope, I don't think I will. No, I better not, because some of the guys may... <laughs> I'm not kidding you. It's not as funny as you think. I mean, it's, the story is terrible. It's fantastically funny, but what happened, you know? Well, I'll tell you one. I'll just give you a little... Uh, I can't tell the rest of it. We, we took the thing out of the car. I'll tell you that. We took it out of the car, and there was a big vacant lot. It was, it was almost dark out, as a matter of fact. It was dark. And it was after supper... We didn't want any of the other kids to see us. That's why we took it way the hell out in the weeds, see? We didn't want anybody to know what we were doing. And nobody did know what we were doing, as a matter of fact, as later events proved. But we took it out of the car, and we straightened it out. And the, the, the way this thing was done, you had, a, you had a whole... One kid held the top of the thing, so the other kid walked away with the bottom. You straightened it out, and at that point, you had to get a... You had to get a... a what they called a, a prominence in the... In the uh, in the plans, which means that, that the top has to be higher than the bottom, obviously. So one of the kids climbed up on top of the car, and he's holding the top of the balloon now. See, he's pretty high. You know, the car is pretty high. I mean, he's standing up. The kid was about five feet six or so, and he's holding the top of it down. And now the balloon is hanging down. And, you know, anybody could hold it up. The thing weighed about eight ounces. So at that point, we started to run around getting everything ready to go. Now, what we did was pack this Excelsior into the basket. And we, we got ready to let it go. And I'm not going to tell you any more. <laughs> I mean, I just can't go any further with this. Do you really want to hear the rest of this? Well, it isn't exactly what you think. Begin with, it worked. I want to tell you this thing worked. And it, and, and it worked incredibly well. Which is why the trauma resulted. See, I, I think often a guy will say to himself, wouldn't it be great if you did thus and so? Now, like Nick, for example, if you said, wouldn't it be fantastic if I could make a set of wings and hook them onto my arms and I started to flap my arms out here in the backyard and I could fly? Well, you did it. See, what if you just went down the basement, made these wings, and you started to flap your arms, and the next thing, you're at 34,000 feet. What do you do? Yeah, well, you had not considered the idea that maybe you didn't know how to fly. You know, you were concerned, you concerned yourself with wings. Now, the wings worked, and you didn't expect them to work, and now you're at 30,000 feet, and you don't know how to turn, Right? What do you do? And you start, you say, well, I guess you turn by just flapping this one more. So you start flapping this one. Next thing you know, you're in what they call a control stall. Well, you never heard of that. And, and 30 seconds after that, you're in what they call a hammerhead stall. Now you're flying all over the sky. Now what? 
<laughs> so you did not learn how to fly. You learned how to make wings, which is not the same as flying. Well, we, we, we had been concentrating on making a balloon. What would happen after we made the balloon, except fame? We always thought we would be famous. We figured that would be, we'd be the hit of the Boy Scout tour, but we never really thought what would happen, nor did, did, did the piece say what would happen. And at this point, I think I had better go on to, to less controversial subjects, because for one thing, I don't want anybody to make one of these damn things because of what might happen. And secondly, I do not wish to uh, incriminate those who may find themselves in difficulties if I do. Because many are the guilt of the guilty are still walking around. In fact, all of the guilty are still walking around, and you're listening to one. And I concede my guilt, but I'm not going to go any further. Nope, right, that's the end of the story. I will give you one clue, however, and that clue is that we did not make an appearance at the Camporee. We did not fly the second balloon at the Camporee. And that's about all I'll say. We, uh, as a matter of fact, I'll tell you what we did. We just, we went out, uh, we had a, you know, we, we were so, after what happened, uh, and the, uh, the dust had not quite settled, we, we, to cover what had happened, we went out and got a collection of leaves, which we entered in the campery. By the way, didn't even get honorable mention. But uh, that's all. <laughs> that's about all we could do. So I'm not going to. I'm not going to carry this any further because uh, certain things, uh, certain things, uh, just cannot be told. I'm sorry I started the story. I am sorry. No, I can't. No, no. I, 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 This is the first time in my entire career that I have not finished the story that I started to tell and I just can't do it because I, I began to realize now you think I'm kidding but I'm not I'm not kidding I'm not kidding <laughs> I'm not kidding but what resulted well uh, one other thing I'll, I'll give you a little a little illustration of what happened uh, MD there was a guy named MD he was in our troop Howard MD was standing on the top of the car and the reason MD was put on top of the car is he was the only kid that day was wearing was wearing uh, tennis shoes so we figured if M.D. got on top of the car, he wouldn't scratch the roof of the car, right? So M.D. is standing on top of the car with his tennis shoes, holding the top of the balloon. Well, Jack Martin, who was kind of the ringleader of this prop, this uh, whole project, and incidentally, had, we built it in this basement and all that, Martin says, all right, he says, he's reading the plans. And he says, okay, he says, now, what you have to do is hold it, uh, down, you, you hold the balloon see, until the hot air produces enough hot air so that the, the, that the balloon will lift off of itself. And, and you've got to hold it, though, until that point. So he says, hold on to it, M.D. Now, hang on, M.D. At that point, he, he produces a Zippo lighter and lights the Excelsior. Friends, you have no idea how the combination of Excelsior and kerosene and solidified wax works. It is something else. Hoo-wee. I mean, that thing started to go. And I mean, it was really going. I mean, it... And it's, it's, it's making... First, it made a gigantic cloud of black smoke. I mean, you know, you know the kind of smoke when, when, uh, when kerosene lights up? Well, it was even blacker than that. I couldn't believe it because of the, the wax in it. And whoo, this great cloud. And, and Envy is standing at the top. And this cloud of smoke comes up. And you saw Envy's feet sticking out of the bottom of a cloud of fantastically black smoke. All you could see was these feet. 
an empty hollow. Hey, I can't breathe. Oh. Well, <laughs> and, and this thing was really burning. And from that time on, I think I had better edit seriously the rest of the story. And I'm not going to tell any more. I can I can only say that this the plans for this this uh, particular device uh, were not only accurate, but they were successful. And I mean the device was successful beyond any possible concept that any of us could have had because we never thought that far. We never thought that far. Well, it reminded me of the time that Schwartz and I built a flying Quaker. You know what a flying... Well, a flying Quaker was a, a gas model plane. And we built this flying Quaker, and we put in the gas the first day we took this thing out. We put the gas in this thing, a little tiny gas tank, you know. And you're supposed to only put about three drops in the tank. Well, we kept trying to get this thing started. It wouldn't start. So finally, Schwartz says, I think we, 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 we've got to put more gas in the damn thing because the gas was pumping out of the top. So, you know, every time we'd hit this... This little, this little model airplane engine, by the way, it was a brown type uh, 032 or something like that. Every time we'd, we'd hit the prop, it'd go, you know, and the gas would pop out of the top. Had this little glow, uh, you know, the little glow uh, spark plug on it, and it wouldn't start. So finally Schwartz says, I, I tell you what the problem is, we're pumping the gas out, and and uh, every time the gas gets pumped out, the thing is going to light because it obviously doesn't have gas in it. So let's put more gas. So we fill the tank. Oh, man. And sure enough, it, it started. And blah, 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 blah. It goes like crazy. You know, blah, blah. Well, now, this was not a a, uh, a controlled model. In other words, it was not a, a yoke model, you know, that you control with strings. This was a free-flying model. And it was five-and-a-half-foot wingspan. So Schwartz got this thing going. And beautiful. We worked all, all winter on this darn thing. Blah. And Schwartz says, okay, let it go. And blah. Up it goes. And the last sight we had of the flying Quaker, she was about at 5,000 feet and apparently heading for South America. Gone. Succeeded beyond our wildest dreams. The plane not only flew, it flew better than the ones that the United Airlines was flying. And it just took off and headed towards South America. It was gone, straight as an arrow. 5,000 feet, gone. We tried to chase it. We chased it on our bikes and cars for about uh, two miles, and it was gone. That baby was climbing and heading out. As far as I know, it's still going. I mean, it never came down. We never knew. We never heard. Now, now that, that's the only incident that I ever heard of that reminded me of that balloon. No, I can't. All right, I'll tell you the rest of the balloon story. My God, you want to hear it? You want to hear it? Well, all right. And, and, and promise, don't tell anybody why what happened. You know, don't tell anybody. If you if, if if you hear this story and you're listening, just just think of it as a fairy story, okay? Just it's, it did not really happen. Well, Martin lit the bottom of the balloon, and instantly, because we did not even test this stuff before, I want to tell you this thing really lit. It just boom, a big puff of 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 uh, yellow blue flame. 
and this great cloud of black smoke billowed up, and we all, you know, go, hey, whoa, whoa. he says, no, that's what it's supposed to do. Martin says, that's what it's supposed to do. Look at it. Wow. And the smoke is being, MD's yelling and hollering. He says, hey, hey, I can't breathe. And that balloon, the, the, the heat from that combination of excelsior, kerosene, and paraffin was so intense that it just seemed like instantly this great cloud of smoke went up, filled the balloon, not only the smoke, but this hot air. There were there were tongues of flame going up into this thing, and MD let go of it. You know, he said, hey, hey, he fell back, and that balloon went up like a rocket. I never saw anything like it. And it's dark, and you can see the flames. That balloon just went up straight up in the air. It, it, it rose, I would say, at about a 1,000 feet a minute. It just went straight up. It went up so fast that it was just almost unbelievable. And what was worse, we did not, it, the plans didn't say it did this. That the, that the flame at the bottom of this balloon lit up the whole balloon. It was like a glow in the sky. It looked like, it looked like uh, some kind of neon sign or something. It was a, it was a red neon sign. See, it went right up in the air. Well, you know, we're scared. Uh, fantastic. And with that, the wind caught it. The thing went up in the air at an angle and started to go higher and higher. It is now floating high up. It's about, oh, three or 4,000 feet up, and it's drifting away. We can't, it's nowhere near where we are now. It's gone about three miles to our left. We're jumping in, in the car. So we started to drive. Flick says, don't, don't take the car. Don't do anything. Let's get back to, let's get back to the house. Let's hide in the basement. So we ran back to the house, and this thing drifted out over the, over the city, and, and, and then it began to slowly come down. And we were watching this thing from the backyard of Martin's house, scared out of our skull, running in and out of the garage, trying to hide. When this thing slowly drifts down, you could hear people hollering, people in the distance yelling and hollering. And this baby hit the ground somewhere, and we saw tremendous, tremendous flames fly up. Boom! corners of the quadrant, you could hear the sound of approaching sirens. We had about a 37 alarm fire that night. Are you curious what it burnt down? It burnt down one-third of the Warren G. Harding School. And I am not kidding you. You think I'm inventing this? You will find accounts in newspapers about it. And you know what the account said? Warren G. Harding School struck by meteor. Disastrous fire results. They thought it was a meteor that came down and it burnt like hell. Fire engines, everything. And Schwartz and Flick and Bruner and Mark and Howard Empty, Stanley Roper and myself hid in the garage. You can hear the fire engines go. You can see why I have never discussed this story. Well, the net result was that the papers came out, and they, it, was, it was like it was treated like a fantastic miracle that happened that that Warren G. Harding School been struck by a meteor. And, and there were accounts in the paper where, where it would say, eyewitness reports. 
And, you know, we were all reading this stuff, of course, paying, absolutely not mentioning anything about it to anybody. You know, to this day, I'm, I'll tell you this, my mother doesn't know about this. Because we were so scared. Can you imagine 18 years for arson? Oh, are you kidding? Uh, and and, and I, I remember reading eyewitness accounts, you know, stuff like, uh, well, I'll tell you this, I never believed in, in, in uh, people living on other planets, but I swear that this was some kind of a spaceship come down, and I could see people inside of it. And when it crashed on the school, I knew that, that something bad was going to happen. And it's a, you know, Clarence Seastrunk of 422 Cleveland Street, eyewitness account. Then there would be another one. Well, I, I, what I saw, I saw a great flare in the heavens, and I saw this meteorite. It had to be a meteorite because I studied astrology when I was in school, and that's very close to astronomy. And we, we saw, my wife and I and my cousin Fred, we saw this thing come down, and it just laid right down there, and I said to my wife Martha, I said, Martha, that thing is a meteorite. Well... There's only one uh, thing that I can uh, say to any of you kids out there. Do not, kid, I repeat, do not play with fire. And if you're going to build something, you better think about what you're going to do with it after you build it. I mean, this has happened to many guys. I knew one guy, for example, who, who was, was really hot after this chick, Nick. And he figured she'd never give him a tumble. And he, he chased her for about six years, and he finally did catch up with her. And she did give him a tumble. And he's been spending the rest of his life trying to escape from what happened as a result of it. So you got to think of the future, kid. I mean, it, it, it ain't just that moment of ecstasy when the balloon goes up. Or when the chick says, okay. There are other things which you must consider. You agree with that, Nick? Yes, but why don't you live by it then, by God, if you agree with it? <laughs> Bring it up, Nick, please. By the way, this... This show really was a public service. I'm serious in the very ultimate sense. <laughs> Don't mess with matches. WR New York, your station for news as it happens. Latest news and detail on the hour from the WR Newsroom, Lester Smith reporting.